This is from the 20th chapter of Revelation, the first four verses, and then skipping to verse 7 and 8. And then I looked and I saw an angel from heaven having a key to the abyss and carrying a heavy chain. And he sees that dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him in the abyss for a thousand years. And he locked it up and sealed it over so that Satan would no longer be able to deceive the nations until the thousand years were ended. And then he must be set free for a short while. And then I looked and I saw the thrones and seated on those thrones were those who had authority to judge. And I saw also the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus Christ and the word of God. They are the ones who did not bow down to the beast or its image and did not have his mark put on their foreheads or on their hands. They will come to life. They will rise again and reign with Christ a thousand years. And when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison in order to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand on the seashore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. A number of years ago, Harold Kushner wrote a a very popular book entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And in the preface, he explained that the title was not Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, because quite frankly, you can't know for sure why bad things happen uh, to good people, uh, certainly in every situation. And I agree with him. As far as that goes, you can't. But I do think there are some usual suspects that you can round up whenever some bad things happen. And I want to just cover a few of those with you this morning. When bad things happen to good or to innocent people, sometimes the suspect is just nature itself. And nature, we come to study and understand more and more, but nature still is beyond our control. And so earthquakes and famine, hurricane and twisters sometimes hit good And innocent people, and we can't control them, though we may come to understand more of them. And sometimes in our own body, uh, things happen in our body that though we may come to understand through more research, we do not have the ability to control. Sometimes it's just the laws of nature that kick in, and maybe I'm at a high place and and, uh, for whatever reason slip, and then the law of gravity takes over, and then I may be uh, heading for a difficult situation. So sometimes it's just nature and the, the ways of nature that, um, that cause bad things to happen in our world. Sometimes it's sin. Sometimes it's just other people's sin. Their greed. Uh, their ability to break or willingness to break promises. To lie. To steal. To cheat, cheat or hurt or abuse. And it's their sin. That brings pain into the lives of innocent people. Sometimes, quite frankly, it's my own sin that leads to pain in my life. When when I look at my life and get some distance and get a little more objective about it, I realize that oftentimes the wounds that I suffer in life are, quite frankly, self-inflicted. My covetousness or insecurity or fear or greed may contribute to uh, or lead to pain and difficulty in my life. But there's one other suspect 
that we need to round up this morning because uh, this suspect is always on the, not only the top ten list, it's wanted enemy number one in the book of Revelation. And that is the dragon, the serpent, the evil one, also called the devil or Satan. Jesus is very clear in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, and in Revelation, that part of the difficulties that we face in our world stem from the presence of the evil one himself. And he uh, looks at the situation in first century Asia Minor, where thousands of innocent people are put to death and thousands more will suffer. And he attributes it to the presence, he says, of a dragon that holds the leash of the emperor in these situations. It's interesting to me because I grew up in the 60s and the early 70s and went to a, a Methodist church and Methodist and Presbyterian and Lutheran and Episcopal churches as quickly as they could in the 60s and 70s were telling their people on Sunday morning that there's no such thing as the devil. And, and that was a myth and, and, and that was a fable and sometimes an excuse and we need to pay no attention to that. But I was amused because I would hear that on Sunday morning and know that many of us on the previous Saturday night had lined up to see the exorcist or omen one or omen two. We even then had that sense that the explanation our pastors were giving us did not account for everything that was going on in our world. John Eldridge puts it another way. He said, have you ever noticed that you have the ability to say just the wrong thing at just the wrong time? Have you ever noticed that you have the ability to do exactly the wrong thing at exactly the wrong time? And then he asked this question. Have you ever wondered if you had any help doing that? If there was someone else whispering into your soul, your heart, your mind, contributing uh, to what you had perpetrated, that someone else scripturally would be the evil one. I mean, do we really explain the Holocaust because of one person, Hitler? Do we really think that the millions who died in the Soviet Union under Stalin is simply due to Stalin himself? Are there occasions where evil is really greater than the sum of its parts? If we get led in that way, then I think we're led down the path of Scripture, which is to say that more than our own sin is often involved when other people's lives are hurt or destroyed. It is the evil one behind that. And notice, though, that the evil one's power, according to Revelation 20, lies in the ability to deceive. He is called the deceiver. In other places, he's called the accuser. In other words, Satan rarely seems to have the power just to make things that aren't there appear. You don't get evidence of that. What you get evidence of is the ability to lead you to think the wrong thing about another person, something that God would never entertain you thinking about them. Or to accuse your own self and think the wrong thing about yourself, something that God in no way believes about you. But when you are led to a place where you take action against another or pour guilt and condemnation upon yourself, part of what's going on scripturally is you have been deceived. And you have aided the work of the evil one who can't make you do anything, but can contribute uh, to the worst of our inclinations, our thoughts and actions. And then they have ramifications that are very uh, painful and hurtful and often widespread in our lives. But here's the good news this morning. According to Revelation 20, the evil one gets put in time out. 
the evil one gets sent to a room, the door's closed, and he puts his nose in the corner. This time out is called in Revelation 20, the millennium. Now, it's, it's interesting because you can't really find, you can find a whole lot about the day of the Lord. You can find even about uh, uh, perhaps great end time battles between the forces of evil lining up to attack the forces of good. Judgment, a lot of things that are in Revelation you can find in the Hebrew Bible. But it's kind of tough to find this thousand year thing. Uh, some scholars trace it back to a, a well-known and influential uh, rabbi named Eliezer ben Yosef. And what Eliezer said is that human history could be divided into 6,000 years or six days of 1,000 years and evil was working alongside of good and and making life difficult for the good. And then Eliezer said, then there'll be a Sabbath of 1,000 years. And then he said, a timeless eternity when God's rule would be evidenced in completeness and fulfillment. Basically, the Sabbath, as Eliezer saw it, was sort of a time out for Satan. When he got put away and couldn't deceive or accuse anymore for that period of time. Whether that's the source or not, the Holy Spirit has given it uh, through these words of Scripture. That evil one gets put in time out. Now, the debate around uh, our day seems to be about two things. One is, well, how long is the millennium? And you might think, well, that's a stupid question. In a millennium, a thousand years? Yes. But remember in Revelation... Symbols are very profound and powerful, and numbers are both literal and symbolic. So is it an actual thousand years? Is it a period shorter or longer? Is it a period that comes chronologically, or is it a period that comes in our life at different times? The Bible doesn't clearly say. So there's still some debate about that. And there's also some debate, if you take it chronologically, when does Satan get sent to his room? Uh, does Jesus come and then Satan's sent to his room? Or Satan sent to his room and then Jesus comes. And, and the, the technical words that you hear for this are premillennial and postmillennial. And in the book of Revelation, it seems to do what's called premillennial. In other words, it believes in chapter 19, Jesus comes. And then in chapter 20, Satan gets put in time out. Um, and that's called premillennial. And for the first three centuries of the church, that's what they believed. Jesus would come. When Jesus came back, there would be a reign of peace that would be established for a thousand years. Uh, and then in the fourth century, something interesting happened. And that is the church began to think, well, maybe, maybe we've got it wrong. Maybe it's our job to sort of take care of Satan ourselves. We lock him up. We put everything in order. And then Jesus will come back if we get it all straight. And many people think that this led to such events like the Crusades, uh, misguided attempts to try to put the world in the order that we wanted it to be in so that Jesus would come back. That's called post-millennial. Well, okay, here's a big parenthesis, and you can uh, take a nap if you want, or you can try to follow me through this. I'll get back to where I was. When premillennial is used as a term today in books like Left Behind, or, or years ago, late great planet Earth, or any so-called books about prophecy in times, what typically people mean by premillennial is that Jesus is going to come back part of the way to Earth, call those who believe in Jesus to heaven away from this wretched place, and then Jesus will come back and finish the job later, and then there'll be a thousand years of peace. And that's called um, Premillennial, And the, the coming back part of the way and taking everybody who believes in him away from this wretched place, there's a word for that they use in that word. Anybody? 
It's called rapture. Now, you may be saying, look, I've been coming most Sundays since September, and you haven't preached yet on the rapture. There's a reason for that. It's not in Revelation. How dare you? Go home and find it. You won't. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't verses that give rise, perhaps, to this concept. Uh, the most famous of which is in the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. Now, here's what you need to know. In this phrase, he talks about, it's a fancy Greek word, parousia, which means coming or advent. And he talks about Jesus coming and he says, what's going to happen is we're going to go up to meet him. The dead in Christ will rise first and then we'll go up to meet him. Um, and then Paul goes on uh, to talk about things. And so a lot of people say, well, well, going up, that has to be rapture. Maybe. Here's something. Thessalonica in 50 A.D., about one or two years, we think, before Paul wrote this letter, experienced their own parousia. Because parousia is also a Roman term that means the emperor is coming to visit. And when he comes to visit, it would be very rude of you to make him find his own way into your town. You don't want to take that risk. So you go up to meet him. You always go up to meet a king. You don't go over. You don't go out. You don't go around. You go up. That's why no matter where you live, if you're going to Jerusalem, to the temple to worship, you are going up. Because that's where God's temple is present. So to go up, you go up and meet the emperor. In 50 AD, the emperor came. They went up to meet him. They went back into the city. They stopped first at the graveyard because emperors always did that. It's a little bit like when our president goes abroad and, and finds a place and lays a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier in whatever country uh, that he's in. That's just something you did. You pay respects to the dead first. Then you go into the city. And then what the emperor does is, is looks to see what you've done with the public works money. We've, got, we've given you at great cost and expense this Pax Romana. What have you done with it? And you and the emperor expect inspect all this work together. Many people, including Ray Vanderland and one of my favorite New Testament scholars, N.T. Wright, say that's exactly what Paul means in 1 Thessalonians. He's not talking about people going up into the sky. He's saying that when Jesus comes, we're going to have to go to meet him. And then implied in that is that Jesus will then come back and inspect what we have done with what Jesus has given us, given us no hint there of anybody leaving this wretched place and everyone else having to be left behind. Well, a great deal of debate uh, takes place around that. But let me just sum it up before I move on. Perhaps you've seen cars driving on the freeway that say this. They have a bumper sticker that says, in case of rapture, this car will you know, be without a driver or whatever. Could be. But the way I interpret the parousia is if when Jesus comes and you're driving on 410, don't speed. Because he wants to know what you are doing with the life that he has given you. And in a parousia, he inspects that life with you. Nobody is flying away from this wretched place. This wretched place is being investigated to see how we made it better. I don't know if that makes sense, but to you, but that's, I believe, what Paul's talking about, and, and I think it fits in better with Revelation. But let me come back full circle. So when you hear premillennial, it can mean a number of things. But for our purposes, it simply means that Jesus comes and the evil one's put in timeout. But this is what you need to know. The timeout ends. When the thousand years are ended, the evil one gets loose. 
and he's at it again. I mean, this is amazing to me. Remember we talked about Armageddon last week? And we talked about all these armies that would gather to surround God's people and they never even get to fire a shot. I mean, talk about losers. It's, it's shorter than the Six-Day War. I mean, these people in an instant, that's it. Earthquakes, hailstones, game over. What amazes me in chapter 19, they're at it again. And Gog and Magog, symbolizing the four corners of the earth, soldiers and armies are rallied again against God. And what do you think is going to happen to them? In case you're out of town next week, I'll tell you. They lose. Again. But here's the deal. No matter how many times evil loses, it never gives up the fight. No matter how many times you put evil in its room, put your nose in the corner, close the door. When you let evil out of the door, it goes right back to it to doing what it did before. When the thousand years are ended, it'll be right back at it. But the result is always the same. They lose. And part of what Revelation says is they lose for two reasons. One, because God ultimately is victorious. And the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has won this war. And the other is because God's people don't go to sleep on evil. And they keep fighting the good fight. When you think you've got everything settled in your life, be on the lookout. When you think you've got the evil one with his nose in a corner and the door locked, look out. He's coming back. And we need to be wary. Two illustrations, I think, are really helpful to just sum up Revelation 20 for me. First one you read in the bulletin. Uh, if you read it, a story about a very large snake, and, and one of the scary things is a snake, even when its head chopped off, is still maneuvering and still acting. And the illustration is that's the way evil is. Even though it's lost the war, it's still thrashing around trying to kick and destroy whatever it can. C.S. Lewis put it another way. At the end of, of World War II, trying to explain uh, God, uh, God's economy to the people in Great Britain, uh, this is what C.S. Lewis said. We all knew that when the Allies established a beachhead at Normandy, cleared the beachhead, and there was a place where they could unload their equipment and move the army in, the war was over. We knew it. Rommel knew it. Hitler knew it. It was over. Now, there was still a lot of fighting. Very hard, violent, bloody fighting. Battle of the Bulge and other places. There were battles that were carried on, but the war, for all intents and purposes, was done. And Lewis says, that's where we find ourselves today. The war was finished. God has won it. At, 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 at Calvary, it's over. The evil one is lost. But the battle continues. And though the war, in the war, victory belongs to God. In the battle, he's handed that to us to continue the fight.